Hey everyone, Michael Gormley here, your least favorite Catching Foxes co-host. I know it has been four weeks or five weeks since you've heard Luke's voice. We did that wonderful episode with Christopher West and Father Gregory Pine. Then I went and uh, I had to move houses in the middle of Easter season while I worked for a parish. So that was fun, trying to do all my parish work and uh, clean my current house while moving into a new house just insane. I don't know what is my problem. I'm a glutton for punishment. So anywho, also, right before I recorded this interview with Dr. Larry Chap, my $300 microphone died. So the way you hear my voice right now and all the wonderful room sounds that it's picking up and my neighbor who's starting uh, up his motorcycle engine, which is a lot of fun. Um, yeah, you'll hear that throughout this video because I had to record with my fancy Mac quote studio quality microphones which are just not studio quality and very echoey i tried all i could to make it not be annoying to you fine folks but uh dr larry chap has a professional uh recording thing so let's talk about him and this episode this is actually going to be a two-parter in part one we talk about hell why not we talk about hans Urs von balthazar and how he used to be the uh a right-wing reactionary and now he's the devil's progressive uh in our bizarre changing culture we talk a lot about that stuff then in the second half, which I'm going to publish next week, we talk about liturgy and the state of the church today in the liturgy with regards to Vatican II and the, and the liturgy and liturgical reforms and the reform of the reform and the reform of the renewal of the reform and all the different things that happen there. So it's a two-parter. Uh, this is going to make it a lot easier for me to move houses, sell my old house, and still keep you uh, involved in catching foxes. That being said, you're not going to hear Luke for at least another month, maybe two months more months um, because he's just going through a whole bunch of stuff, super busy with work and family and all that stuff. Um, so I'm going to take this opportunity before I introduce Dr. Larry Chap to let you know something. We have a new read from betterhelp.com. Okay. This one's called the important one. Relationships take work. A lot of us will drop anything to go and help someone we care about. We'll go out of our way to treat other people well, but how often do we give ourselves the same treatment? And I have now three people who are very close to me who use betterhelp.com slash foxes to get that sweet, sweet discount, who use BetterHelp on an ongoing basis, and it really, really works. We need to make sure that we, too, are mentally, physically, and emotionally healthy. This month, BetterHelp Online Therapy wants to remind you to take care of your most important relationship, the one you have with yourself and Yahweh. The good thing is they have Christian counselors. Whether it's hitting the gym, making time for your haircut, or even trying therapy, you are your greatest asset. So invest the time and effort into yourself like you do for other people. BetterHelp is online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to, which I really don't want to. <laughs> it's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can be matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. Give it a try and see why over 2 million people have used BetterHelp online therapy. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp, and Catching Foxes listeners get 10% off their first month, which is huge, at BetterHelp.com slash foxes. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash foxes. Thanks to BetterHelp for sponsoring this episode and thousands of episodes of Catching Foxes. 
And now my guest today, Dr. Larry Chapp. Dr. Larry Chapp is a retired professor of theology. He taught for 20 years at DeSales University near Allentown, Pennsylvania. In 2013, he and his wife opened the Dorothy Day Catholic Worker Farm in Harvey's Lake, Pennsylvania. Dr. Chapp received his doctorate from Fordham University in 1994 with a specialization in the theology of Hans Urs von Balthasar. We're very lucky to record this episode with him. I hope you enjoy. Dr. Larry, you yeah. have your retired professor, DeSales, yeah. theology, awesome. Uh, you you have a great love of uh, St. Thomas Aquinas, Hans Urs von Balthasar, similar to Bishop Barron. Who, who else besides von Balthasar do you draw from for a lot of your uh, theological insights? Oh, well, that's it. Uh... Henry de Lubach, Romano Guardini, Louis Bouillet, Joseph Ratzinger, uh, guys like that, yeah. uh, but also more contemporary people, people uh, like Tracy Rowland, uh, John Milbank, a Protestant, but still a very good theologian, um, guys like Mike Hanby, David C. Schindler, David L. Schindler. Yeah, a lot of, so those would be the more contemporary guys. Nice. I mean, nice. I'm definitely in that sort of school, that communio school of theology, right? Yeah. yeah. I love St. Thomas, but I'm not a Thomas. I actually lean more towards Augustine than I do Thomas. Um, but I, I don't know. Augustine just seems so much more compatible with my own prejudices. <laughs> just, you know. I, I was yes. talking with someone who was hypercritical of Ratzinger because he wasn't a Thomist, and that's not traditional. And I said, uh, well, I mean, he's more of an Augustinian, so that's older. <laughs> and Aquinas that's was older an Augustinian. Than Aquinas. <laughs> he was very Augustinian and he uh, loved Augustine and, and yeah, Ratzinger leaned more towards Bonaventure. Yeah. Then yeah. he did Aquinas and did his doctoral dissertation on Bonaventure. But yeah, Ratzinger, he's made no bones about the fact that he's, he's no big Thomist, that he, he loves St. Thomas. Yeah, same with Balthazar. Balthazar was no Thomist, but he also quoted St. Thomas more than any other author in his massive trilogy. I, you know, I don't know. I had to do my doctoral dissertation on, the, on that thing. And yeah, Aquinas is his favorite author, but he's not a Thomist as such. So, you know, I, I don't, you know. I just don't get these criticisms that are coming now of these great, great thinkers like a Ratzinger or De Lubach or Baldwin. What is it? Some sort of purity test? Is Aquinas really the only voice in the Catholic tradition that's worth paying attention to? Or with you got to know Aquinas, yeah, inside and out. But he's not. You can't reduce the Church's tradition to Thomas Aquinas. And guess what? Aquinas would be the first person to tell you that. Yeah, I, I just I feel this in my bones that. If Thomas Aquinas were to see the way people have um, almost idolized him, you know, turned this figure from the past into this static moment wherein nothing more can be added, like, he would be horrified. And on top of that, he was, you know, in a way, the type of theology that he was doing by incorporating Aristotle 
um, oh, you yeah. know, essentially into it. I mean, it was condemned in papal universities to even teach and lecture on Aristotle. And here he is reframing the Christian, you know, tradition from the fathers and, and all this stuff within an Aristotelian, well, not within, but utilizing an Aristotelian framework. Well, yeah. I mean, it was thought that of the two, Aristotle and Plato, that Aristotle was, he sort of leaned materialistic and therefore leaned a little atheistic. And so there was this deep, deep suspicion of Aristotle. I mean, when Aquinas was appointed to teach at the University of Paris, there were riots, and, and he had to be sort of escorted into the university and protected, lest he lest he be accosted and thrown out. Mm-hmm. Uh, he also, you know, he, he dialogued with uh, Jewish scholars like Maimonides and, and you know, Islamic scholars, Averroes, Abyssinia, you know, so... I just think it's crazy that now he's sort of froze. He's freeze framed. He's frozen in time, and uh, you have to pay attention to a strict interpretation of Aquinas, or you're not really traditional enough. Uh, you know, I, I have a word for that. It's 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 insane, and uh, I have another word for it. It's stupid, and and I, I really have less and less patience for that kind of thinking anymore because it's not really rooted in a proper understanding of the tradition. It's not rooted in theology. Uh, are you seriously are you going to say that Ro- Joseph Rotzinger isn't traditional enough, that he's not bright enough, he's not theological enough? Give me a break. What this is is ideology playing out, that people are so upset with the contemporary church that they're retrenching and retreating into some sort of romanticized past with Aquinas as the bell cow, and, and you better therefore pay attention only to Aquinas or you're, you're in deep kimchi. And, and, you know, it just doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah, I, I think for me, in, in a lot of ways, one of the things that I see it as is Aquinas is safe. At least the the Aquinas as we've inherited him. And when you look at the insanity that has become our liturgical practice, you know, all the different abuses and all this stuff, I mean, totally people can romanticize and pretend like there were no abuses in the traditional Latin mass. But the idea is... Um, you know he's safe in a in a dangerous time in a time of absolute crisis you can at least you know like you might not be able to trust your local catechism but you can trust the summa you know and people have recourse to that as a way of um they're not i i think the majority of people who act like that are not doing theology you know they're treating aquinas yeah, yeah. they're treating the summa as a catechism yeah you know what and and if you're like feeling lost in a, in a tempestuous sea and you're looking for that solid anchor. I mean, you could do worse than Aquinas. So more power to you. Go and read the Summa from cover to cover and, you know, and, and preach it in the streets. Just don't turn around and tell the rest of us that we're doing something horribly wrong and non-Catholic if we're not paying strict attention only to Aquinas. That's where I get upset. Not that they love Aquinas, but that they're criticizing all these people they barely understand for wanting to go beyond Aquinas in certain ways. Yeah, and it's so funny because, you know, in one of the interviews you were talking about being at Fordham and focusing on von Balthasar, you got all this crap from people at the university because he's some 
borderline reactionary. And then now <laughs> yeah. in the last five years, he's become the source of all, you know, um, progressive. The source of ills. all evil. Yeah. He's like the Darth Vader of modern Catholic theology all of a sudden. You expect that horrible sort of empire music to be in the background anytime you talk about Balthazar. Uh, yeah, because when I, 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 this is why, you know, it was slow for me to sort of catch up to the fact that there are these people in the church today who think that von Balthasar is this unbelievable, dangerous, modernist, progressive when in point of fact, you know, when I first started my career going to Fordham, I mean, the theological guild in the United States thought of Balthasar as this arch right-wing reactionary. I mean, look who was publishing him, Joe Fessio at Ignatius Press. Uh, That's already strike one. And strike two, he was against women's ordination. He was in favor of Humanae Vitae. He was very pro-papal authority and Roman authority. So there was strikes two, three, four, and five. Yeah, Balthazar was just considered an absolute retrograde, Neanderthal, troglodyte, reactionary that only nitwits who hate the reforms of Vatican II would pursue. But I I was very determined. I did my dissertation under the late great Jesuit Father Edward Oakes, one of the first promoters of Balthazar in the Anglophone world. And and I you know and I I stuck to my guns and did it. and so lo and behold now all of a sudden mainly because of his book dare we hope that all men be saved Balthazar is considered by these rad trad types to be the source of all horribleness in in the world today uh, in in the Catholic world today and it's just uh, once again I just I just think it's insane uh, we can talk about we can talk about that this is this is all of a sudden the hobby horse of people like people like Ralph Martin who has now made it almost his cause, his life. You know, he's 80 years old now. The the cause in his final years, you know, to bring down the Balthazarian empire. Have you talked with him professionally at all? Have you guys ever exchanged emails or anything? No, no. The most we came to actually discussing this with each other was I I blogged on his uh, book twice, and then he offered uh, a sort of non-response response on his blog page that Mm -hmm. essentially just said, uh, Larry's using some inflammatory rhetoric and I don't like it. So, you know, shame on him. And yet, you know, here's a guy who talked about von Balthasar in a chapter devoted to Satan uh, in his book, Crisis in the Church. There's a whole chapter, you know, on satanic influences or satanic delusions. In, you know, in that chapter, he discusses Nazis, arch-feminists, abortionists, murderers, genocidal maniacs, and Balthasar. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and I think, and, and that's what I kind of took him to task for. It's like, you know, okay, gee, lots of people disagree with Balthazar's position and dare we hope. A lot of responsible theologians disagree with him and say, oh, you've gone too far, Hansi. And, 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 but we discuss it. We dialogue with it. You know, I've had my moments of thinking, well, I don't know, maybe he goes too far. Um, but it's that theology of his uh, in Dare We Hope is far downstream of his main theology. Anybody knows it, you know, his massive trilogy and stuff. He wrote Dare We Hope later in his career. It's downstream of his main theology. And he admitted that it was highly speculative. And he always submitted everything he wrote to the judgment of the magisterium of the church. And the magisterium judged that it wasn't heretical. It might be theologically wrong, but it's not heretical. But then along comes Ralph Martin and essentially says, in his book, that Balthazar has fallen prey to a satanic delusion. 
and lumps him into the chapter dealing with all kinds of horrible people, and then proceeds to cast all of these nasty aspersions at, at his relationship with Adrienne von Speyer, the Protestant convert to, to Catholicism and, and mystic that Ralph Martin can't stand. Um, and I just thought the entire thing was just grossly unfair. Now, he has a whole book devoted to a critique of Balthazar, and he does not engage in those kinds of polemics in his book. So yeah, I would yeah, say... We'll all be saved or something like yeah, that. Yeah, exactly. I, I, I think that the book is um, a decent one, actually, and it's one that Balthazarians should should bother to answer. Uh, but his book, I think, the, my main complaint was his book, Crisis in the Church, where he goes beyond simply criticizing Balthazar's position into a sort of... Because in some ways, it proves too much. Because, look, you've got people like John Paul II and Pope Benedict who are deeply sympathetic with Balthazar's views as expressed in Dare We Hope. Ratzinger comes very close to Balthazar's position in Dare We Hope. Then on top of that, there are fathers of the church, sainted fathers of the church, like St. Gregory of Nyssa, for example, who were just flat-out universalists. So if you're going to say, as Ralph Martin says, that uh, these are satanic illusions, and if you push these things, you are being very anti-gospel, and you are a basically a sock puppet for Satan, then he's, he's indicting more than just Balthazar here, right? Yeah. He's indicting some rather significant people, both alive now and in the history of the church. And so I, I just think that is a bridge too far in my book, to start to start labeling your theological interlocutors as tools of Satan. Uh, This is not the way academic theologians debate things. This is not the way true academics go about academic discourse, writing a chapter on genocidal bastards and then throwing Balthazar in there with them, all because you don't like his theology on hell. Uh, That I find actually reprehensible. And and Mark, go ahead. I I had a buddy who... uh who knew him and was talking with him. Uh, I can't remember what the occasion was. I don't want to speak out of turn here, but uh, he said, you know, there, I didn't realize that you, I thought you were a charismatic. I didn't realize you were a, a, a radical traditionalist. And that he was like, what are you talking about? I can't stand those people. And he's like, you do understand that your name is now mentioned alongside all of those people because of of this book of crisis in the church, especially you going after Hansers von Balthasar. He's like, no, yeah. no, I'm not in all, you know, and it's like, no, no, you don't understand. Like you are in the minds of everyone now because. Oh, of this. yeah. And you see, I made this point too it towards the end of one of my blog posts. I said, for Ralph Martin's sake, I mean, I used to be a huge Ralph Martin fan. I still kind of like Ralph Martin, right? And he's done so much good, good work for the church. And the fact is Love love that fulfillment of all desire book. So excellent. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that is still, still one of my favorites. Yeah. Right. So I don't even have it on my shelf anymore. I don't know what happened to it, but I, I read it a long time ago and I loved it. And Ralph's done some great work in in the church. But that's this is my point. He's actually harming his own reputation now by making his sort of white whale 
Balthazar's views on hell. Uh, even I made this mistake in my blog, sort of lumping him in with the trads uh, and had to sort of backtrack on that because on this issue, he sounds a whole lot like the rad trads. Uh, and so it's pretty easy to kind of make the mistake of lumping him in with them uh, on this topic. But Ralph's a pretty, you know, uh, he's a strong defender of Vatican II and uh, the reforms of Vatican II. I don't think he has any huge problems with the Novus Ordo liturgy. I mean, so, yeah, yeah, I, it, I think it would be wrong to put Plus, he's a charismatic. Yeah. So I think it would be wrong to lump him in with the trans. But on this issue, that's what he is. And, and you know, and he, he's also, I think, treading on some thin ice in some of the stuff where he's gone after Robert Barron, Bishop Barron. Uh, who I know, Barron actually stops very far short of Balthazar's full position in Dare We Hope. He's <laughs> Robert Barron is not the crypto-universalist that some people make him out to be. But the, in that Matt Fred interview that Ralph Martin had uh, that I blogged about, uh, it was a decent interview, actually. I thought it was pretty good. But then they get to this part where they're talking about, uh, you know, they're talking about Robert Barron. Or maybe I'm confusing this. I don't think this is a Matt Fred interview. This was just actually a standalone video that Ralph Martin did on his own. Yeah, he where did a he was up with Bishop Barron yeah. after Bishop Barron had a video out about it. Yeah, but... Bishop Barron had a yeah. So the Matt Fred thing, he brought up crisis in the church and Balthazar, uh, and uh, but they did bring up the whole Ben Shapiro thing with with Robert Barron, which the rad trads do all the time. And which I, and I was very disappointed to see Matt Frad taking up the cause of saying, yeah, Barron missed a real opportunity there to evangelize someone like Ben Shapiro. And he really soft pedaled, you know, what are you what what in God's name was Bishop Barron supposed to say to Ben Shapiro when he says, you know, am I just screwed because I'm a Jew in terms of salvation? Was he supposed to say, yeah, yeah, you are, because it's really hard to get to heaven unless you're a Catholic. Guys, I am so freaking excited about this new sponsor for Catching on Foxes. I'm talking to you guys today about Executive Coach Solutions. They are a um, leadership consulting firm that brings creativity and strength-based training to the art of business management. ECS works with individuals to bring out their talents to enable them to be happier and more effective at work. I cannot emphasize that part enough. I had the chance to work with them back in 2018 and 2019. It was absolutely incredible. It made me so much better at my job. I have skill sets that I use to this day. When you invest in yourself, especially if you are like a priest or if you are at a parish, a lot of times as church workers, we always don't get that soft skill that we need in order to lead well. And this is what Executive Coach Solutions does. They provide you with those soft skills that you need to be a more effective leader. And I'm 100% happier at work than I was before I worked with them. I feel like I have the tools now to really talk with anyone that I work with about, about like anything. I have the, the ability to set goals, set priorities. Do things that, especially if you work in the church, people don't really provide you with any of the know-how on on how to do that. And they do such a great job that any, like even if you don't work for the church, this is actually primarily for people who work in a business setting, but it 100% applies to people who work at the church as well. This is really an opportunity for like anyone who listens to our podcast who wants to get better at their career. I encourage you 100%. You're going to get all the practical soft skills you wish.
wish you had you had learned when you work with them. So this is what I want you to do. Go to executivecoach.solution/foxes and schedule a phone call. Talk about where you want your career to take you. You're going to be better at your job. They're going to give you the tools in order to do that. I really encourage you just just to go to their site, schedule a call, talk about where you want your career to take you. That website, again, is foxes and schedule a phone call today to talk about where you want your career to take you. Or, you know, listen up, uh, Mr. Jew, uh, you have an, you've rejected Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, so you're most likely going to hell, so you better repent now. What was he actually supposed to say? And we need to keep in mind, too, that the church has a history with regard to Judaism that isn't always a pleasant one, and you have to be very aware of your tone and tenor when talking to a Jewish interlocutor like this. So what did Baron do? He talked about how Jesus was the fulfillment of Judaism and that therefore to be a completed Jew was to be a Messianic Jew and a follower of Jesus. No, he didn't lay on the hellfire cowbell. You know, he didn't know more hell cowbell. You know, he talked about Jesus as the fulfillment of Judaism. He did evangelize Ben Shapiro. And I, I would wager that he evangelized Ben Shapiro in a way that in the long run is far more effective than it would have been if Mike Voris had been there with his toupee bellowing away at, at Shapiro, you know, for this, that, and the other perfidy. Um, because Mike Voris is another one who's gone after Barron on, on the, on the Ben Shapiro thing, you know, I, I, and it just, it's almost as if the, the or cause of all of this is Balthazar, because the reason why I think a lot of people, a lot of the trads now hate Barron is because he came out in support of Balthazar's view for the most part in dare we hope. Okay, so as soon as Barron did that, okay, he now has a target on his back. So everything that comes out of his mouth isn't good enough. Ben Shapiro, uh, Word on Fire just came out with a new liturgy of the hours that, you know, you get a monthly booklet. All right. Although I saw a bunch of rad trads come out of the woodwork saying, oh, this is Barron just trying to make money. Oh, look at this, a disposable liturgy of the hours. Uh, Word on Fire is into everything. now. Instead of praising the man, I mean, look how many Catholics subscribe to Magnificat, for crying out loud. And it's a great blessing. The, the most intimidating thing to Catholics about praying the liturgy of the hours is all those ribbons, all that oh, flipping around. So many it's, ribbons. So many. Yeah, I, so I use the app. I use the app, the iBrievery app. It is so ugly. It is so user unfriendly, but man, it don't have any ribbons. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, you know, and I've done the ribbon since I was in seminary in my ute. So, I, you know, it's, it's second nature to me, but it is intimidating. So here comes Word on Fire and puts out this Liturgy of the Hours that makes it user-friendly for people, and it's non-electronic. It's actually a text, a book, and yeah. all that happens is he's criticized. for this. He's criticized for Shapiro, he's criticized for Liturgy of the Hours, criticized for the fact that he thinks he hopes that most people go to heaven. Uh, you know, and this is just... Ultimately, the, the, I think the hinge issue is this issue of hell and salvation. And, I, you know, Ralph Martin went after, gosh, I'm on a big ramble now, but this, the whole thing started, I was talking about Ralph Martin's video where Bishop Barron had talked about salvation outside of the church in one of his sermons. And he was just quoting Lumen Gentium, Vatican II, saying, yeah, you don't have to be a Catholic to be saved. Everyone is saved through the church, so salvation does come through the church because it comes through Christ. So outside of the church, there is no salvation. But what does it mean to be outside of the church? And Lumen Gentium gives us all these criteria. And uh, But according to Ralph Martin, Barron wasn't good enough. He wasn't complete enough. And in the midst of that video, 
he said, and, I, and he repeated this to Matt Fred too, that it's very, very difficult for a non-Catholic to make it to salvation. Very difficult because of all the obstacles that are in the way, and that only the Catholic sacramental life can remove those obstacles. So it's very, no, maybe Ralph Martin is correct. Maybe it is very, very difficult for non-Catholics to go to heaven. Maybe heaven is populated with 98% Catholics, and maybe hell is populated with mostly Muslims, Hindus, and various non-religious sorts of people. Who knows? I don't know. But I tell you who doesn't know either is Ralph Martin. And and I think, therefore, the position taken by someone like Bishop Barron, that we are allowed to hope for the salvation of all, because God has expressly said that he wills the salvation of all, that this is not some sort of quasi-heretical or dangerous point of view. I mean, Ralph Martin seems to think that unless the danger and the threat of Massa Damnata is out there, unless the danger and the threat of hellfire for millions and billions of people is out there, we will not evangelize and nobody will ever convert. Well, I would remind people, there are whole religions out there that don't have a concept of hell, and they don't seem to have any trouble maintaining their adherence. I mean, Buddhism doesn't have a strong concept of hell, neither does Hinduism. The closest you come to hell in Hinduism is an endless cycle of reincarnations, all right, uh, that, that you eventually break out of, moksha. The, the, the fact is, there are religions in the world that don't have a concept of eternal hell, and they're doing just fine. So this, I don't know where this notion crept in. By the way, I believe in an eternal hell. That's not my point. The point is this notion that has crept in now, that unless you really double down on hellfire and eternal hell and punishment and that most people are going there, unless you double down on that, then you're never going to evangelize. I fundamentally disagree with that point of view. I think that is a very wrong-headed point of view. You, you, you know, you... You don't yeah. lead with hell. I, I, I just don't think in this day and age you lead with hell cowbell. Yeah, I think, well, I mean, it, it's funny to say that unless there's the position of the Massa Damnata, you're not going to have a missionary impulse in the life of the church because you have Bishop Barron, who is doing everything to be a, a bishop that evangelizes. You know, he is basically the number one evangelizer in terms yes. of recognition and popularity and in terms of people who actually convert to Catholicism. Um, you know, like he is doing exactly that, which is ironic because he's saying unless we have that. Now, I've read um, uh, We'll All Be Saved by Ralph Martin. It was years ago. And the one of the reasons why it resonated with me, and I, I think the tone in which he, um, Ralph Martin, because I, I, I have somewhat, I, I'm like a closet charismatic, like it's an important part of my life, but I've never been a part of the capital C charismatic renewal movement, I've, you know, right. but it's definitely a part of my spirituality, my life in, in certain sense. Um, so I've always been, the reason why I love the charismatic part of the church is there is this radical openness to the Holy Spirit, not telling me what he wants me to do with my life, but telling me what he wants me to do with my day. You know, like right now, what do I do? Like, what do you want me to do, Lord? Right. And right, it's like right. evangelizing, missionary, like go out on the streets in public places like the first apostles, like JP2 said. That was 
things, people I was seeing doing that were all charismatics exclusively. And so I began seeing this, you know, from the different things, totus to us and uh, focus and all this stuff. There, there is this like groundswell within the charismatic renewal of like, yes, go out and bring the gospel and bring salvation to people. Um, that to lose the idea of like, I'm saving souls from hell, but for God was this huge part of it. But then, and, yeah, and I can yeah. understand why people think that if you remove that, you there. But I, I think the problem is we have a too Protestant notion of salvation, of salvation saved from hell, and not salvation for. Meaning, I'm saved for communion with God. And when we begin to step back and see what I think is a vision that the fathers have unanimously and what Thomas Aquinas has and what some of you know the greatest saints have it's just this notion that the whole life of Christ is salvific not just his death on the cross but the whole life of course it culminates with the death on the cross as the as as the moment but the whole idea is union with God it's theosis divinization divine filiation whatever yeah. word you want to use yeah. that's the point the point is not not sinning the point is not not going to hell the point is becoming God. And when we lose sight of that, then it becomes, you know, it's like the, the, the act of contrition because I dread the loss of heaven and the pains of hell. And it's almost as if people are just like full stop end there, not because I love you, my God, who are all good and deserving of all my love. It's like, it's just full stop there. And it's like, well, if we don't have the hell, then heaven means nothing. And it's like, no, <laughs> it's, it's the exact oh, I opposite. I just, I, I have friends of mine who say, well, if nobody goes to hell, by the way, I think it's very possible people go to hell. But anyway, they say, if nobody goes to hell, then why am I bothering with all this religion stuff then? Yeah. So I, I said to the guy, I said, oh, uh, I, I, then you are, you are refraining from cheating on your wife only because you're afraid of hell. No. I said, well, then why don't you cheat on your wife? Well, because I love my wife. Well, there you go. That, that you have a positive motivation, in other words. In other words, what, you, what you're essentially saying is, I wouldn't be morally good at all unless I was afraid of going to hell. Well, that's nonsense. If you examine right. your moral life, and this, by the way, is Thomas Aquinas, our wills are fundamentally made for and oriented towards the good. We can't even choose evil for evil's sake. We always choose evil, as Aquinas says, under the appearance of some good. What makes it evil is that it's usually you're choosing a lesser good at the expense of a higher good. So you've upset the hierarchy of goods. That's what sin does. It disintegrates you and disequilibrizes you and so on. But morally speaking, we're oriented towards the good. We're oriented towards higher things. And we would naturally move towards them just from the sheer beauty and goodness of them, which is why Bishop Barron leads with beauty and goodness and truth. And yeah, so it's, it's sort of crazy, this notion. And by the way, too, I think sometimes people think that purgatory is going to be some kind of a walk in the park or something. Like, once you make it into the next life and you realize, oh, oh, crap, yeah, I'm on my way to heaven because I'm in purgatory. I made it now. That it's just like, okay, you can take a deep sigh of relief. And so, no, 
I mean, if you look, you want to talk tradition, the tradition is purgatory is a nasty place that you don't want to be. The reason why you have to be purged or purgated is because you're still clinging to the effects of some of your sins, to the joy that they bring to you. And that has to be remediated. And that's going to be excruciatingly painful. You also still have to be punished in a sense under the dictates of justice, you know, for, for the, the, what's due to your sins. Um, and, and so purgatory is not going to be, even, even if everybody eventually makes it to heaven, you might be in purgatory for millennia and really not enjoy. So if you want to simply look at negative reasons for not sinning and a motivation for evangelizing, even if everybody eventually goes to heaven, the, the process of going through purgation uh, is reason enough to simply avoid doing these things if that if that if you have to have that sort of base base level. For example, like David Bentley Hart believes in hell and he believes people go to hell and he believes that it's going to be a really horrible experience, but it's just not going to be eternal, that eventually you're going to be remediated, you're going to be restored, and you will go to heaven. But in no even the great origin, who's often you know sometimes called the universalist, even though he probably wasn't, the purgation you have to go through in order to make it to heaven is is nothing to to take lightly. So at any rate, yeah, I, I just don't understand this notion at all that if unless we really emphasize over and over and over again, uh, massa damnata, hell, pain, per, you know, all that stuff that we're just not going to evangelize. I don't I don't buy it. I don't buy it. So athletic greens. Athletic greens. <laughs> okay. Can we I, I just I know we have I know we've got it. We ha- we ha- yeah. have some copy. My gosh. I am obsessed with Athletic Greens. I am absolutely obsessed with our next partner who has a product that I literally use every day. I started taking um, Athletic Greens because the pitch sounded very cool. This year, I wanted to just embrace embrace health again. You know, uh, that's just my big thing. And I, so it's one of the main reasons why I did Athletic Greens. And we and we uh, were able to meet with them and hear uh, a little bit of like what they're about, a couple other podcasts that are on par. They sent us these starter packs, yeah. which are awesome. 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food source, superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens to help you start your day right. This is what I do. I come downstairs. I open the kennel for my dog. Dog comes out. I go right over, fill up. My glass of water, 12 ounces, cold water, dump one scoop of Athletic Greens in there, and it supplements for the whole day. It's awesome because the stuff they use is sourced from whole food ingredients made in New Zealand. It tastes good. It's a powder that you dump in your drink. You can take it on the go. All of my health care regimens have fallen to the wayside except for Athletic Greens. That should tell you something. <laughs> I was a bit skeptical at first just because I was like, am I going to be peeing very expensive pee? Like, that's what I'm, I'm wondering. So tons of people t- take some some like type of a multi multi vitamin, but it's important to choose one with high quality in- ingredients that your body is going to like actually absorb. I could feel that happen like immediately afterwards. And I've been, I'm sleeping a little bit better. Everyone, I'm begging you to buy it so they will keep giving it to us. <laughs> I don't even know if I'm going to. And, I mean, like, like honestly, God, I'm not kidding. Um, we're going to like both Aaron and I are going to keep doing this after the problem with these sponsors we start getting them because we're doing an ad and then i end up spending all the ad money on buying more products so So here's a great thing this stuff is lifestyle uh friendly whether you eat paleo uh keto vegan dairy free gluten free Mm -hmm. it's fine it's got less than one gram of sugar uh no gmos which is very important for me and my family no nasty chemicals or artificial anything it's really good stuff so uh this is what we're going to say to make it easy athletic greens is going to give you a free one year supply of immune supporting vitamin d and five 
five free travel packs with your first purchase. I have the travel packs. I will be using the travel packs. You don't have to refrigerate the travel packs. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash foxes. Again, that's athleticgreens.com slash foxes. Move over, Joe Rogan, to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. Thank you to Athletic Greens for sponsoring this episode of Catching Foxes and My Body. So good. It's so good. Yeah. And I do see, you know, and this is where you get the language of Bishop Barron, where he will often say things like, I believe in saving people from hell, but, you know, preaching repentance is saving people from the hell of their own sins and their own, you know, like right now, the hells that we create and uh, or the hells that we participate in or the hell that we bring to earth in our sinfulness. Um, There is this huge element that. I feel like, well, let me just give you kind of my view. I I am very sympathetic with Dare We Hope because while many good Catholics can rattle off the verses that seem to predicate a massa damnata, you know, the way is wide and many are those who walk it and the way is narrow and few are those. Right. They also miss what could be called the universalist type Bible verses. Um, right. You know, or the dogma of the father's or the doctrine of the church's um, the father's universal salvific will. The father desires that all be saved. Um, so I think I, there is a, a, a rejection or an ignorance of those things. So for me, I'm somewhere in the middle. I think there is a hell. I think hell. Uh, I think there are there are many people in it. Um, I don't know if uh, the masses are in it eternally damned and lost. Uh, I don't think anyone gets out of hell. Um, I, I am. I know you're not partial to, but I am very partial to C.S. Lewis's Gates of Hell are Locked from the Inside. Uh, I was kind of going through that article right before we, we talked, and I was like, oh, man, I use yeah. that all the time. Um, but for me, hell I used is, to I used to use it, too, yeah. Uh, for me, like, like every time I give a talk, especially to clergy, when, I, when I'm able to do presentations to them, I always warn them of... Uh, that they will be judged more strictly and that the fires of hell are not something to be uh, pretended like it, like it doesn't apply to them. Because I find the gr- of so much apathy among the clergy because, uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a parish employee. I know how easy it slips into the apostolate of the church becomes just my work-a-day job, punch in, punch out, then I'm done being a Christian. Like, I get... I get that. I mean, for me, it's an apostolate. For them, it's a vocation. But, like, there's this element where there is no fear of God as a beginning of wisdom. There is no acknowledgement. Like, you know what? There is this thing called judgment. And you will be judged, and I will be judged. And St. Paul talks about 1 Corinthians 3. Like, the day will reveal as through fire. And I just think of all these people yes. who, it's, it's, uh, it's that line from Hebrews, what will we do if we neglect such a great salvation? And I find so many priests and deacons and bishops, I've been privileged to talk to all different groups in the last year, there, there's, a, there's a neglect. And many of them come up to me and they say, like, hey, like, I, I don't preach hellfire, damnation, all that stuff, but they're like, you really awakened in me what my... Like I'm, I'm called for glory and for God and to be united for Him for all eternity. But yeah, I can see a softening or a flattening when we pretend like hell isn't a thing. You know, I can see that, but I, I think it's wrong-headed the way that we were talking about it earlier. Well, the thing is, we need to 
in a sense. Well, before I get to that, I want to come back to C.S. Lewis. I love C.S. Lewis. I used to teach Lewis when I was still teaching all the time. I think he's an underrated thinker. And I loved in both The Great Divorce and his book, The Problem of Pain, what he has to say about, you know, hell being sort of locked from from the gates from the inside. And I've always kind of liked it. And, And if I had to rewrite that blog, I should probably maybe go back and edit it. I would say, and the gates of hell might very well be locked from the inside. And Lewis may be correct. Uh, one of the reasons why people have come up with this theory that the damned are self-damned, that our judgment is a self-judgment, is because the concept of an eternal hell inflicted upon us by an all-loving God who wishes to save us doesn't seem to make a lot of sense because the punishment should fit the crime, right? Even in yeah. a human judicial system, uh, eventually your your crimes have been paid for and you're let out of jail. Uh, and, and even if you're executed, you know, then that's considered the final judgment for, for your crime. They're not going to dig up your body and inflict more indignities on it. (laughs) You're done. Okay. And, and so David Hart's point, for example, would be what possible finite sin could a human being commit that would deserve an infinite and eternal punishment? Now, I think C.S. Lewis and many others recognize this, even Balthazar bought Lewis's view that the gates of hell are locked from the inside. And if anybody goes to hell, it's because they send themselves there. And I think this is the only theological way that one can negotiate an eternal hell, uh, is that the sinner themselves desires, they desire to stay in hell. And that's why they are, in a sense, condemned to hell for all eternity. My problem, however, with the self-exile, self-judgment, gates of hell are locked from the inside motif, is that it doesn't appear to me to be very biblical. I mean, if you look at the New Testament and the words of Jesus, when he talks about damnation and hell, all of the metaphors that are used and so on imply that hell is not a place that the people themselves have chosen. It's a place that God has sent them to, right? You know, like the, the separating the sheep from the goats in, in Matthew's parable of the judgment, all right? And, you know, the, the goats say, well, when did we not do these things to you, Lord? And he says, well, you didn't do it to least of my brethren. Now off with you. Or there's the unwise virgins, and all of a sudden, hey, wait a minute, and boom, they're out. Or, you know, the people that did not realize the moment of their visitation and boom, they're in hell. Uh, so it, it, it it's you the know, thief Jesus in the talks, night. It's the thief in the night, the surprise. The... Exactly right. And uh, that your sins are going to cause you to be thrown into the fires of Gehenna. You're going to be tossed into the flames. You're, in other words, so there's, there's this constant impression in the New Testament that hell is a judgment which is imposed upon you, whether you want it or not, by the justice of God. And and so I, 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 I look in the New Testament, and I look, and I look, and I try to find in there where it implies anywhere that the damned go to hell on their own volition. And quite frankly, I don't find it. Uh, so then that doesn't mean, however, I don't think that the gates of hell are locked are not locked from the inside. I think they probably are. I think Lewis is probably right. So you can still hang on to your theory. I'm just... I'm just grappling with the fact that I think that's a theory that people have come up with in order to make an eternal hell make more sense theologically. Oh, totally. Uh, And that's totally what I'm doing. When I talk about it with high school students and parents and all this stuff, like 
that, you know, I don't understand how an all good God could send people to hell. Uh, I always say, well, or you always hear people say, and so I parroted that often enough, that we send ourselves to hell, so that self-exile kind of motif, by our choices, by cooperating with evil, by rejecting the good, by, you know, not allowing grace to be operative in our lives. Every little and individual choice is a choice for hell, right? And so, yeah, they are locked because this is the trajectory of our choices magnified without without deception you know eve was deceived but those in hell they there's like a final yes to their um you know what was that line um even if god were to appear before me i would not worship him for then i would not be god like that notion of like a final definitive self-idolatry and that's what hell is what was the line from are those in hell say i don't want to love i don't want to be loved i just want to be left alone and that and that's what you get and and that's why i think people say you know like ralph martin that balthazar was a crypto universalist he really was a universalist but he wanted to stay within orthodox faith so he he came up with this dare we hope nonsense but if you read dare we, by the way that's a bad english translation yeah. of the title yeah. It's actually in German, was dürfen wir hoffen, which really translates better as what are we allowed to hope for? In other words, what does church teaching allow us to hope for? What what am I as a good Catholic allowed to believe about hell? It's not some dare we hope that maybe, just maybe, everybody will be saved no matter what the Bible says or whatever. No, he said, what are we allowed to hope for? And you know, I, I, I don't see anything wrong with the idea that we're allowed to hope for the salvation of everyone since God says that's that's what we want. Um, that's what he wants. So I, I don't um, – anyway, that's that's my views on that. Yeah. And I think that the only – but my point is Balthazar is not a universalist. He thinks that it's possible people go to hell. And I think that that's why he's not a David Bentley Hart. And my disagreement with Hart wouldn't – David Hart's arguments are sort of ironclad. I mean, he's a hard guy to refute. He's a smart guy. Read his book, That All Shall Be Saved. It's almost irrefutable. But at the end of the day – I just don't think we can know. This is Balthazar's point, which is why I remain a Balthazarian and not a Hartian, is that we just don't know who is going to heaven and who's going to hell. We don't know. Uh, and and I think it claims, and Balthazar's point is, we claim to know too much if we say we know that that there's lots of people in hell or people in hell. <laughs> or conversely, we know everybody goes to heaven. And Balthazar says those are things that Revelation does not give to us to know. Hey everyone, Gomer here, and I want to take a moment to talk to you about a new sponsor to the show, Petrus Development Conference. This conference being held at the Naples Grand Resort in Naples, Florida, will have over 150 Catholic fundraising professionals from ministries small and large. Their primary audience is campus ministries, Catholic high schools, Catholic grade schools, Catholic dioceses, and yes, Catholic apostolates. They want you to invest in yourself and your career as well as your ministry's future. So come and build community with other Catholic fundraisers in a beautiful beach resort location. If you register in March, check this out. You'll be eligible to win a free three-hour consulting package with a Petrus coach. If you register in April, the first 10 people will receive a $40 airport shuttle voucher. Oh, yeah. Fundraising is hard, so let the fine folks at the Petrus Development Conference give you the tools and the community to make it less hard and actually enjoyable and fulfilling. 
Take a walk on the sunny side of fundraising at the beach in Naples. And listen, I've done tons of these Catholic conferences, and I'm telling you, the ones at a resort on a beach is where you want to be. The Petrus Development Conference 2022 takes place on June 13th to the 15th. And if you sign up today and use the coupon code FOXES, you'll get 50 bucks off your registration. How awesome is that? So click the link in the show notes or head on over to PetrusDevelopment.com slash PDC22. Special thanks to Petrus Development for sponsoring this episode of Catching Foxes. So one thing that I think people don't realize is Dare We Hope is also written in, as a polemical piece, he's he's arguing with a handful of people that have been critical of a, a previous publication. Yeah. And one of the one of the things that he responds in like chapter two, the I think it was a, a it was a Jesuit or Dominican who basically said, "We are allowed to hope for everyone's individual salvation, but not that all may be saved." Like you can hope that. Yeah. Your uncle who, you know, lived a horrible life and, you know, died and now we're at his funeral, you can hope that he goes to heaven, but you can't hope that everyone goes to heaven. And I, and I felt like at that moment, these weren't the, the categorical differences began to like wither away between the two. Like we really don't understand the nature of Christian hope, like because we believe in the mercy of Christ and the all powerful nature of God, God can yeah. do anything. In this notion of salvation, and it is not up to us. The one thing that I struggle with a, uh, not the one thing. There's a lot of stuff that I struggle with because I don't. I, 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 in my heart of hearts, I, I like. I want have hell to be empty, but I kind of also am a massive damn not a guy. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a fickle human being. Depending on how I wake up in the morning, I guess. <laughs> uh, who cuts yeah. down the traffic? But um, yeah, the, yeah, exactly. I hope you go to hell. <laughs> I don't think I've ever said those words, but I do say it is very hard for you to enter heaven. Um, no, but the the phrase that I, I think of is when Jesus says to Ju- you know, talking about Judas, um, it would have been better for that man never to have been born. And you know the that notion of well, if he's in heaven, then no, but if he's in hell, then yeah. It would yeah. be better for that man because he – but then you – I think a Bishop Aaron would say, well, it would have been better for him never to have been born as a rabbinical hyperbole emphasizing the horrible nature of his sin regardless of whether or not he's burning in the fires of hell for all eternity. Well, what do we do I, with, I, I think, yeah. Sorry. Yeah. I think that's the best way to interpret that is it's a, it's a kind of – you know, like your mother says to you, you're going to regret the day you ever did that, buddy, <coughs> as, as you are doing something wrong as a kid. Or I'm going to I'm going to make your life miserable for doing that. Uh, you know, I, I just think that it, it could be a, just a, a manner of speaking. Now, however, we're talking about our Lord and we're talking about the scriptures mm-hmm. and the scriptures don't throw verses in like that simply as flippant little things. Uh, so, right. Part of me agrees with the idea that maybe it's just a little rabbinical hyperbole in order to make a point. But I'm like you. The other part of me says, well, maybe Judas is frying his butt off in hell right now as we speak. After all, he did he did turn in our Lord and all that. So but this only underscores I don't know I don't know where Judas is. I but here's the deal. I hope Judas is in heaven. But sometimes when you listen to these some some traditionalists, it's like they're really hoping Judas is in hell, and they're going to be very disappointed if they get to heaven and find Judas there, you know. 
What, what do you do with uh, all of the, you know, lives of the saints or testimonies of the saints who are given glimpses of hell? Um, or uh, exorcism ministry where they the exorcist relates, you know, stories of the damned or, you know, and what they recount about hell and human souls in hell. Uh, it's not an appeal to scripture, but it is an appeal to the church's kind of lived experience of of the faith there. Like, you know, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, and and th- I think this is a pretty. Uh, it's it's an impressive argument in its own way. I don't mean to mm-hmm. downplay it at all. And tra- traditionalists love to bring this up. You know, you talk about all these approved visions and mystics who say, yeah, you know, there, there's there's people in hell. Um, and uh, I, all I can say is that there is also a, just simply a very very good chance. Uh, that what they're being shown is what is potentially going to happen to individual people. You know, and, and, and we also, even if there really are people in hell, no, we have to keep in mind David Hart's view that people do go to hell. It's just, it's not eternal. So the fact that maybe somebody has a vision and God's showing them people in hell doesn't necessarily mean those people are going to be in hell for all eternity. Maybe God's mercy kicks in. And uh, Jacques Maritain, the great Catholic philosopher, we're not just talking David Hart, the great Catholic philosopher Jacques Maritain, who certainly could not be faulted on his orthodoxy, was a very orthodox Thomist. If your viewers don't know who Jacques Maritain was, he was probably the most important and famous Thomistic philosopher of the 20th century, Frenchman, and his theory was that people go to hell, they're punished there, but due to the intercession of the saints in heaven, that God will eventually, through the merits of those intercessory prayers, grant a reprieve to all who are in hell and grant them a perfectly sort of natural happiness. They're not going to go to heaven, but they're at least going to come out of hell and out of their eternal pain and torment and will be granted a certain level of natural happiness. Uh, now, that was that was Jacques Maritain, and it's certainly not a biblical idea, but it's an interesting one. And the fact is, it only underscores once again, you know, we don't know. We just don't know what the final disposition of each and every one of us is ultimately going to be. We know God is love, and therefore, if anybody is in, in, in hell for all eternity, it has to be a function of God's love. There has to be something in God's love that demands you to be in hell for all eternity. Uh, it's hard for me to imagine what that might be. You know, I love you so much, I'm just going to torture you forever. Uh, I just don't know. You know, that would be David Hart's point of view. You can spin it any way you want, but ultimately it's like, I love you and I'm going to stomp on your head forever. Um, this doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense. Uh, anyway. I do. I, yeah. I feel like I could talk about this topic so much because I think that it does have important weight in all these different areas. And there's so much misunderstanding. Like, for me, you know, if you take that Thomistic view that, you know, God is our final end, right? And that we were made for God and that anything less than God, a creature rather than the creator, ultimately will frustrate us, then hell is not so much God torturing us, but kind of the, the again, going back to that self-imposed thing, it is, it is the torture of a life 
of an existential frustration, right? My soul lives forever. Yes. And it lives forever without being connected to its final end. The torture can be, you know, sim- religious symbolism, right? A lake of fire and all that stuff to describe the absolute frustration of a being made for God, but never of its own free will, never choose, never wanting to be united to God. So the the way I kind of described it one day, and I, and I was thinking about it out loud with a buddy of mine over alcohol, of course, was... What if those in hell, what if the damned were in heaven? And because their wills are ordered against God, it is experienced as this absolute torment. I mean, you know, in heaven, what does that even mean? But, like, you know what I mean? Like, it it could be that the divine gaze that they hate it. They've given themselves over to that, that final state of, I'm not deceived. I don't want you. And that's what God grants them is, you know, they, they, they become calcified like, you know, Napoleon in the great divorce. I, I, yeah, I, I think you've just nailed it because uh, I'm glad you brought this up because this is how I always end these conversations. I don't lead with this. I always <laughs> end with this. I want to get all the other stuff out of the way first. And it's that we're all going to, we're all going to be divinized in a sense. We're all going to go through the process of theosis. Uh, but some of us are, are going to resist it. And it's precisely in resisting theosis that we are frustrating our own deepest desire. And therefore, we're going to be, for all eternity, in a state of absolute existential anguish that we know what it is that we truly desire, and yet we don't desire it, and we reject it. And I, so it, people might find it hard to accept that such a being could exist, but this is exactly Balthazar's construal of things as well, that if someone is in hell, it is the hell of a kind of existential torment uh, all their own over the unfulfilled and unrequited uh, love that is in my heart for God that for whatever reason gets short-circuited and, mm-hmm. and I don't pursue it. And that all of the other stuff, the lake of fire, gnashing of teeth, you know, thrown into the darkness, these are just all metaphors for the fact it's going to be real icky. You know, we're just, we're, 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 we're going to be very miserable, very unhappy people. And it will be all our own doing and all our own choice that God will be who God is, love. And that love will be streaming at you nonstop for all eternity. And it will burn you. If you hate it, it will burn you. But it's still love. And I think that ultimately is the best way to think to think of hell, because all too often, you know, we think of hell and heaven as places, you know, spatial areas. And yet hell is ultimately God's hell, just as heaven is God's heaven. And I think that both heaven and hell are Christological realities. We can talk a lot about they're, they're, yeah. they're realities that are opened up in the sacred heart of Christ in the, in the Paschal event, and, and that we will dwell in the heart of Christ no matter what our destiny, uh, but that those of us who are one with Christ will experience it as, as heaven, and those who hate Christ will experience it as hell. And that's why I—that's the place where I see the union of the self-exile versus God as judge— and it's condemnation. The thing that you said about your criticism of the self-exile, I, I always felt uneasy with it, even though I, it, it made sense to me. I felt uneasy because God is judge. 
And it seems like we're saying, well, you're not yeah. really the judge. I'm the judge of my own soul. And then it's like, well, that seems like a little master of my fate, captain of my destiny, you know, kind of thinking that's not necessarily biblical. And, uh, and so it's like we remove God as judge in order to make it more palpable for us modernists in our, in our yeah. liberal ears who, you know, I got a vote and I voted myself in hell and oh well. But at the same time, this, this notion of like God desires your salvation, God desires union with you, God desires your divinization, but you have calcified your 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 heart against that and so how could yeah, you yeah. experience his love like the clay a clay and sun becomes hardened right like it's the same sun that shines some turns hard the other is soft it's like pharaoh's heart right yeah the uh, sunshine sunshine melts an ice cube and hardens cement <clears throat> but it's the same sun now um the metaphor of god is judge and that's what it is it's it's a metaphor and there are a lot of metaphors for god in the Bible, judge is one of them, and it, you know it's some attempt through metaphor to capture the fact that God is infinite justice. Fine. But when we look at biblical metaphors, we have to ask ourselves then a further question. What is the dominant metaphor for God used by Christ in the New Testament? Father. Not judge. Father. Abba. Abba Father. And so whatever other metaphors I think that we're going to use for God, they all have to be subsumed in some way or another and related to the ultimate metaphor for God that Christ provides us. I mean, when these Lord teach us to pray, okay, sure. Our father, all right. He didn't say, oh, great, holy, just judge in heaven. He says, our father. And what kind of justice, therefore, does a father hand out to his children? That would be the kind of judge that we're looking at. Mm-hmm. Mm. Well, we've talked a lot about hell today and didn't get into any of my comments about uh, Vatican II that I was preparing the most for. <laughs> uh, oh, I know. That's the trouble. I mean, I guess we're done then, huh? Okay, so. Well, I'll uh, tell you what. I have, I have 30 minutes more time, If, but do you? Oh, yes. Yes. Oh, okay. Well, why don't we... Uh, shift focus from hell. This yeah, is let's I'll do. Put it in. Yeah, I'll put in an ad here. Uh, but then let's talk about actually. Your... Yeah, yeah. Good because hell is not my main area of interest. Actually, <laughs> so, See, I hope that's... to avoid it <laughs> academically, professionally, uh, and personally. 